think of how much the Lord has given, what an amazing blessing it is for us to be able to be together on the first of the week. I'm so thankful for you and for your presence here. Thankful for those who are online encouraging us. Even though they weren't able to be here in person, they're, they're tuning in and showing their desire to continue thinking of the things of God. We're grateful for those who are visiting with us. We do have visitors today. We're grateful for your presence with us and pray that this will be uh, encouraging for you and edifying. Our aim is to look at the Word of God together, to build each other up according to His teaching, uh, not according to our own wisdom. And he has instructed us to do that, to console and exhort and edify in the time that we have together. best way I can think of to do that is to share His Word with you, so I pray you'll open in Hebrews chapter 2. We'll be using this as our text this morning. I'd like us to consider that uh, Certainly during this time of COVID, these last couple of years, there have been many, many casualties, and not all of those have been physical. Uh, so many things changed. Uh, so many ways that we do things changed. We were noticing uh, just yesterday or the day before, there's no 24-hour Walmarts anymore. It's a strange thing to think about that they close at 10 or 11. They used to be open all night long. Lots of restaurants that used to be open all night long have just changed. There's just, it's a bit of a different world than what we had grown accustomed to. And even the way that some of us do church has changed. <laughs> and I say do church in that sort of accommodative way that the world thinks of things. If this is just another thing on your agenda, then maybe it's become convenient to do church at a distance. But that's not what the Lord has called us to. We need each other. And this text in Hebrews chapter 2 really encourages the saints to be thinking about how important what Christ is offering is. Of course, there's a special context here. In Hebrews 1, Jesus is shown to be superior to angels. Angels are pretty amazing messengers of God, but Jesus is far superior. As God's Son, He's a superior messenger. He, God has spoken to us by His Son. Verse 2 of chapter 1 says, The one who is heir of all things and through whom He made the worlds. What a messenger Jesus is. He is above any of the angels. He is not a created being, but he is God in the flesh. And so he has the scepter of righteousness and the superiority in his message. As heir of all things, as I mentioned, he's got much more to offer than the angels could possibly offer. Uh, he himself is offering of what is his. And as creator, he has the highest authority. And so Jesus is far superior. Chapter 1 really uh, brings that out. Hebrews chapter 2 is going to build on that. It begins with this word, therefore, because of how superior Jesus is to everything that would have come before, then there is a therefore. There's a need for a more earnest heed to the things we've heard from him. And so the verse 1 begins with that, lest we drift away. And that's what I really want to talk about and sort of focus on is that idea. There's an interesting uh, use of the language here. I'm a language guy, so these things stick out to me. But there's this superlative warning here. There's an exceeding great need to pay attention. We must give the more earnest heed. But the idea is make sure you don't miss it. Uh, the messenger is so great. Think about the Hebrews here. We're talking about Christians who are of a Jewish background. They had come out of Judaism and been converted. And at this point, they're being tempted to sort of go back and give more attention to the law that Moses, had, their great lawgiver, had given. 
and that had been mediated by angels, thus the contrast between Jesus and the angels. We'll talk about that a little bit more in the beginning of this text here in chapter 2. But they're sort of tempted to go back to what they knew and to go back to this system that would sort of take away some of the persecution, at least from their Jewish brethren. So there's a temptation to go back and pay less attention to Jesus and more attention to that. But the truth is they needed, and so do we, to give exceeding great attention to Christ. Uh, in uh, Mark chapter 9, as uh, Peter there is sort of confused about what he ought to be doing, they're on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus has become glowing and exceeding white before them. And he's talking with Moses and Elijah. And you imagine Peter seeing these great heroes of the faith with this man he's come to respect. In the chapter before, he says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus had to rebuke him because he told him, well, you're never going to go to the cross, though. That's not going to happen. You're wrong about that. So he clearly doesn't understand fully who Jesus is, even though he's got the wording right. But in Mark 9, verses 7 and 8, as they're amazed at this, and Peter has said, oh, let's, let's build three temples, one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for you, Rabbi. Here's what happens. A cloud comes and overshadows them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son. Hear him. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. God made it clear, this is one who's greater than Moses, greater than Elijah. He's the one that needs to be listened to. When he says, hear him, he's really making a reference to what Moses had brought out in Deuteronomy 18, that there would be another prophet that would rise up like Moses from among the brethren, and that everyone who didn't hear him would have to pay for that. We're not listening. He's the one that everyone should be listening to. It wasn't Moses. It wasn't Elijah. It wasn't the angels. It's Christ, and he's here, and we need to give him more earnest heed. What is needed is exceeding great heed. That's a word we don't use that often anymore. It's a word that's sometimes used negatively. In fact, a lot of times it's used negatively. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them, Jesus says in Matthew 6. Be careful about your motives behind what you're doing. He says, take heed or beware of, is the translation in Matthew 7, the same word. Beware of false prophets. Now that's, we might use that word beware more often than take heed. But it's the same concept here in the negative. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, their hypocrisy and their accusing of Jesus when he's doing things that are actually right. Be careful about that. Be careful about how you pay attention to what Jesus has said. As it's used here, it literally means listen with full attention. And the idea behind this taking heed is that you're going to do something with it. You're going to beware or pay attention, be aware of, is that idea of beware. You're going to take heed because you want to know exactly what needs to be done because you want to act. And there's a few examples of this concept in the book of Acts. I want to uh, look at just a few of those quickly just to get this idea down of what it is we're doing when we're taking heed. Because again, that's a phrase we don't use that often. So in Acts chapter 8 and verse 6, the multitude with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip hearing and seeing the miracles, which he did. He's gone down to Samaria and he's teaching these new things and they're heeding the things he's teaching. What does that mean? Uh, it means that they're responding as he teaches these things and they're embracing the faith. Verses 10 and 11, we see sort of the opposite side. You've got this man named Simon who is a sorcerer and he's been teaching these 
these truths that are untruths because he can do these sort of miracle-looking things. And they've been giving heed to him from the least to the greatest, verse 10 says, saying, this man is the great power of God. They heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for so long. So he's doing these things that look miraculous and people are, are, are moved to action because of this. And they're calling him the great power of God. Then Philip comes along with the word of truth and they listen to what he's saying and they're moved then to obey God and reject these false things. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, Paul tells Timothy, give heed, pay close attention to reading, to the doctrine these things do before I arrive. And that's, uh, it was needed that he would give his full attention to that. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, as Paul is encouraging the elders in Ephesus, he says, take heed to the flock of God. Be careful, actively defend the flock of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So this is a word that means pay attention with intent to do something with what you've been paying attention to. Uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, 8, this is an interesting, this is a negative version, and I think the sense is really clear here. I'm talking here about the context of the bishop or the elder, and it says, or the deacon in this context, must be reverent, not double-tongued, and it's the same word here, not given to much wine, not greedy for money. He doesn't take heed to wine. The point is, he's not going after it. <laughs> he's not paying attention to it so that he can then drink it. He's not indulging in, the new uh, international version says, not addicted to, some of the versions say. You can think of someone who's addicted to wine as someone who's taking heed to wine. He's looking for it. He's going to follow after it. He's going to do something with it. And he's saying the deacon is not going to be that kind of a person. So this word is really fascinating, and I hope it's helpful as we think about these nuances of this word. Is there anything that deserves greater attention to take heed to, to listen to what the desire to do than the gospel that Christ has revealed. There is nothing. Matthew 13 talks about the one who found this treasure in a field and he went and bought the field for the sake of the treasure he could dig up later and have, or the pearl of great price. There was nothing that was more important in their lives than that thing. They're willing to give it all. What are we willing to give up? Are we willing to give up our time and our energy and our efforts to be paying attention to Christ, to give heed to the things that he has for us? There's something interesting about this word, though, that really ties into its use here in Hebrews. It's often a nautical term, uh, and it's, a, it's a, a word that means bringing a ship into land. You're, you're taking heed to your ship. You're making sure that it comes in without hitting on the reefs or without banging into the land. You're cautiously bringing it in. The opposite of that in practice would be to allow your ship to drift or to drift away. That's exactly the verse, uh, verse 1 says, lest we drift away. We need to be taking heed. We need to be navigating our ship so that it doesn't drift away. And the Greek word here is literally to glide or slip away. And it's so easy for that to happen. And I want to suggest that that may be happening in our own lives as we've sort of gotten less cautious. We've been more cautious about our physical lives with, with COVID and perhaps less cautious with our spiritual lives. I want to challenge us to think about this concept as we see it in the Hebrews. Now, they, they were drifting toward something else. They were going back toward something else. But what happens with us sometimes? What happened to them? They weren't applying exceeding great heed to the things of Christ. They were tempted by things around them to drift back into something that they knew, something they were comfortable with, instead of challenging themselves to grow in Christ, and so they drifted. They're trying to return to an insufficient system for salvation. In Hebrews 10, the Hebrew writer just lays it out. The law having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things 
can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. Would they not have ceased to be offered then? The worshipers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. And yet, they're wanting to drift back to something that's not going to save them. It is normal that we'll drift back into our zone of comfort. So often we'll fall back into the way of life that we had before we began seeking Christ if we're not diligently seeking. Hebrews 11.6 in the great chapter on faith. Without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those, I like the way the King James tradition handles it, of those who diligently seek Him. It's not actually in the word in the, the original. It's, it's a nuance of the word that there's this diligence in seeking. But there's a need to be paying exceeding great heed to the things of Christ. Faith requires seeking. Sometimes we get this idea that, well, I'm already in the faith. I've already become a Christian. I'm already a part of the church. And so why would I keep digging and keep seeking? But we want a deeper faith. We want a faith that's based on an earnest heed and a desire to act. Uh, I've mentioned to some the, the lady that was at one of the congregations Patricia and I first started meeting with who just stopped coming. And finally, when we went to visit her, she said, well, I didn't feel like I needed to. I've got a diploma that says I've read the whole Bible. <laughs> uh, obviously, she was very weak in her faith. And she didn't have the opportunity to come in by Zoom or anything back then. She wasn't participating in any way. So we went to see what was going on with her, and she eventually fell completely away, as you might imagine. She was not earnestly seeking anymore. She felt like she'd arrived. <laughs> Even Paul, the great apostle, said, I don't think about these things that are behind. I reach forward. <laughs> for the goal in Christ. I want to be found in Him, and I want the exceeding greatness of what He's offering. What we have, what these Hebrew Christians had, is what everyone has been seeking for since the beginning of time. It's interesting how Peter describes in, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, this, uh, the salvation that the prophets have inquired and searched of carefully. They've been taking heed of this salvation. They prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. The prophets that received these messages were diligently seeking to understand what that meant. And in their day were living to the fullest they could in the propagation of this word and the living of this word. They were seeking what we have. We're willing to stop seeking, stop diligently heeding what's been given to us. The truth is, if we don't give exceeding great heed to seeking, we will drift away. That's what the verse says. We must give more earnest heed to the things we've heard, lest we drift away. It's going to happen. A boat that's left to itself is going to follow the current. If we are not seeking to bring our boat to shore, if we're not seeking to anchor it somewhere, and we'll talk about that anchor in just a moment, we are going to be lost. The thing with drifting is it's so subtle. He doesn't say you're paddling out to the deep or paddling out to the dangerous parts. He says, drift away. You may not even notice it happening. It may happen while other things are going on. In fact, it will happen while other things are going on unless you're giving exceeding great heed to seeking and to building up your faith. It's not enough to come near. It's great that you got the boat to the shore, 
But then if you don't anchor it and get off, you're going to drift back out. We've got to anchor to what is steadfast. And in Hebrews chapter 6, we're told exactly where to anchor. I love the nautical imagery in the book of Hebrews. It's subtle, and we don't really catch it as much in the English. But it's, it's through this, this use of this word of drifting and, and of, uh, of seeking here. In chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, our hope that we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, who has become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. He needs to be our anchor. And if we're not anchored in him, we are going to drift. If we're anchored in the church, we're going to drift. As the tide of the church changes, the church is people. And people that aren't doing well are going to drift away from the Lord. The Lord's not going to drift. He's going to remain steadfast. The more of the people of the church are anchored in the Lord, the more steadfast that church is going to stay. But if we're anchored in the church, then that, those people all are going to eventually drift away. They must be anchored in the Lord. If we're anchored in religion, if we're anchored in comfort, if we're anchored in whatever it is that's not the Lord, we are going to drift away. He is steadfast and sure. And he can secure our souls. It's not enough to come near. We've got to anchor and we've got to be diligently seeking and giving great heed if we're going to do that. Now back to Hebrews 2, in verse 2 he says, If the word spoken received a just reward. The word spoken by angels. Now Jesus is superior, but if the word spoken by angels received a just reward, uh, a reward can be a recompense for good or for bad. The, the word promised some good things. He's not questioning here if it did. He's saying since it did. Some of the translations may bring that out. Transgression under the, the law in Deuteronomy could bring a just death. There were times when the recompense for violating the law was stoning to death or being shot to death with arrows. There was death involved, and the, the, the community of Israel would be involved in that. They would remove the evil from among them by putting to death the transgressor. That's a just reward according to the law that was given by angels. But it's interesting to think about the just recompense that would come on the obedience. It's not that they were earning something, but there was a reward. There was a, a, a payoff in the keeping of the law. But the truth of that is what it brought about. In Romans chapter 3, the sort of just recompense of the obedient faithful brought about the Christ. I love this, this idea. Romans 3 verses 23 to 26 for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Because of a faithful remnant, because of those who were diligently seeking and taking heed to the things God had spelled out in their old law that could foresee the coming of the Christ who would provide a means of justice for those who were unjust. David understood this when he said, the blood of bulls and goats you do not require. It's a contrite heart. It's the spirit of one who's repentant and given to you. That's the sacrifice that God will not despise. David understood that. He understood that above all the, the offerings and sacrifices was to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. David understood that. And so this faithful remnant of men like David and others brought about the coming of the Christ. 
So the lesser, that law that was given through angels, brought powerful results. How shall we escape this condemnation if we neglect? Again, neglect is so subtle. (laughs) He's not saying an intentional going against. He's saying neglect. Neglect happens before we realize that it's happened. You go by and you look and realize that thorn bush has now grown to to half the height of the wall inside of my house. I never noticed that before. How have I neglected to cut that when I'm out here cutting my lawn every week? It's neglect. It's not intentioned. Some neglect is intentional. But this is talking about a drifting neglect. And condemnation will still be just for those who have drifted, as it will be for those who chose to fall away and to drive themselves away from the Lord. Negligence, just like drifting in a boat, happens to those who are passive. Did you notice he's saying we need to give superior, exceeding great heed? There needs to be an active participation. But those who aren't, those who are passive, are going to drift. They're going to be negligent. They're going to lose what they've already been given. It's not that the negligent aren't busy with things. I didn't cut down the the thorn bush because I was doing other stuff. I was busy, but I wasn't tending to something that needed to be tended to. The negligent often are busy with other things, even things that are sort of good. But the drifter, the problem is, he's not concerned with the thing that anchors him. He's looking at other stuff. (laughs) He's drifting because he's fishing and forgot to tie onto the shore and looks up and now he's miles out to sea in a little dinghy that's not going to be able to get him back. We need to be careful as we're doing other things. The source of our doing other things ought to be our being anchored in Christ. Mark chapter 4. Jesus is talking about, the in the parable, the soils there, the different types of hearts described as soils here that are receiving the seeds. We look at verses 18 and 19. These are the ones sown among thorns. They're the ones who hear the word. And the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things entering in choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. We need to notice that not all of these things are evil. The desires for other things and the deceitfulness of riches, those may be evil, but what about the cares of the world? Paul says, if you don't work, then you shouldn't eat. If you don't provide for your own, then you're worse than an infidel. There are things that this world cares need to be taken care of. We've got to have a job. We've got to work. In fact, Adam was given a job when he left the, the garden. He needed to work and provide for his family. That is something that God wants us to do. But that cannot become the focus of our lives. And that so often happens. We want to work hard now so that we can rest later. (laughs) Well, when we do that and we lose our focus on the Lord, most of us end up at a place where our fruitfulness is choked out because we've dedicated our time and our energies on things that in the end are going to be temporary. We're not concerned with what anchors us. We're too concerned with the other stuff going on right now. And our anchor point is lost because we drifted from it. We want to be very careful, certainly spiritually, about that. Here's what God uh, sees as happening. We, we look there at uh, the ones who let the cares of the world choke them out. Look with me at Matthew chapter 20, uh, 22. Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are all killed. All things are ready. Come to the wedding. 
But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And Luke, it says, well, I've got a new yoke of oxen I need to test out. Just bought a field I need to plow. They've got things going on. It's not that they're not doing anything. In verse 8, he says to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. They were unwilling to come. They were occupied with other things. That's how the Lord sees this drifting, <laughs> that you're unwilling to give the diligent, earnest heed you need to to the things that he's given you. Verse 5, they made light of it. The New International Version says they, they paid no attention to what the Lord was calling them to. It's the same word, neglect. <laughs> they neglected to come because they had other things going on. Can you imagine? We see that and we get indignant. <laughs> They're called to the wedding feast of God. What are we called to? And are we neglectful? Are we not taking earnest heed to the things that Jesus has called us to? A greater word brought by a greater person having greater promises will bring a greater condemnation if it's neglected. That's uh, common hitter David Guzik, but I think that's really fitting. Uh, we just need to think about what God has given us in Christ. And if we're not taking earnest heed, we have no excuse. They were without excuse in the Roman world just by looking at nature and not recognizing God. How much more when the supernatural, his son, has come in among us, we're not willing to take heed to the things he said. We need to be very careful how we're neglecting and drifting. Look at all God has done. I love this in the text in Hebrews 2. It really points out all God has done to call attention to this word given through Christ. And certainly the Jews, the Hebrews here, would be aware of God's working in this way. So the Hebrew writer is just lying it up here. First thing is, he sent his son, this great messenger, to speak it. At the beginning, it was uh, spoken by the Lord. Think about how, how God thinks about that. We're told later that Jesus gave his life. Look at verses 9, Hebrews 2, verse 9 through 11. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. So you've got Jesus who came, he took of flesh and blood, he shared in it that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil. He became like us and he gave his life to deliver the word of salvation. God sent him to do that. Think about the way God reasons. In Mark 12, we're told about the ones who had taken over the vineyard and God sends all his messengers and says, I'd like some of the produce for my vineyard. And they start beating his messengers and finally says, I'll send my son, my only heir. Surely they'll respect him. That's what God's thinking about when he sent his son to preach this message. John 3, verse 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's the way God is thinking about this. As he sends the one, surely they'll respect him. Do we respect him <laughs> fully? Are we diligently and earnestly heeding the things he said? God called attention to his word by sending his son. Then he sent these men of great character, apostles. We might say, well, that was the son of God. <laughs> But these are men just like us. These are apostles. And they confirmed this message. And among them all are good, good men. They were also willing to give their lives. Except for John, they were all martyred to preserve this word for future generations. And I love, again, in the Hebrews text, what it says about these men. Um, 
want to just uh, start at like 37, Hebrews eleven thirty-seven. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. That's the character of these men that gave their lives so that we could have this word preserved that Jesus at the first began to speak. He gave his life to set this word before us. These men, I'm ashamed sometimes when I think about how little earnest heed I've given to the word of God. I think about men who are willing to walk the ends of the earth and be put to death in horrible ways, sawn in two to get this word out. And it's got dust on it sitting up on my shelf. Am I giving earnest heed? His son who came and allowed himself to be nailed brutally to that cross. Am I giving earnest heed to this word that has been preserved? And of course, God himself bore witness. This is the one the Jews would most recognize, perhaps. He had given signs and wonders and various miracles. And then gifts of the Holy Spirit in the hands of these messengers, all according to his will, over and over and over. God is bearing witness to the importance of this world, of this word. He set aside the physical laws of this world. He did miracles in order to attest and confirm this word. That's an amazing thing to think about. All the miracles that go hand in hand with the revelation of this word. God set aside physical laws to call attention. Pay attention to this because it's something that's far beyond what you've got here on earth. And so what the Hebrews were doing in rejecting this word of salvation and returning to the old ways was was inexcusable. I dare say, if we're guilty of it, it's inexcusable in us as well. God has done all of the same things he did for them for us. We just need to be very careful that we're not simply drifting away. If we do not give heed, that earnest heed, if we're not just seeking, if we neglect or drift, are we not even more without excuse than they are? We've got the full revelation. They were still getting it in pieces. We've got the full revelation of God. And yet, can we neglect it? I'm not saying any of this is done with an evil or a desirous heart against God. What I'm saying is the subtlety of drifting. The Hebrews were enticed by the law of God. They have something at least positive they were looking at going back to. What is it that's pulling us away from earnestly heeding Christ? I'm asking that of myself. What are the things that would pull me away from earnestly giving all I have to seek for Christ and his law? Sometimes it may be the seeking for religion instead of the seeking for God. That happens. People are fascinated by religion. I was one of those, when I was an atheist, I was fascinated by religion. So I sought all the world's different religions and studied through them. Didn't find one that seemed convenient. So I didn't ever really become a proponent of them. But there are people who settle on a religion that they really like and they get involved in it and give themselves earnestly to it while neglecting what God has, has given to us in such a great manner. Sometimes it's just entertainment. We just want something that's going to keep us entertained all the time. A lot of religious people are that way. If it's not moving and it hasn't got me feeling good things, then I really don't want to be a part of it. You guys preach too negatively uh, or whatever the, the case may be. I need something that's going to keep me entertained. heard an argument one time among brethren about if we really want to keep our, our children coming, we've got to entertain them. We've got to have a rock concert. We've got to have something going on that's going to keep them coming back to the building. Do we? Leviticus, that was the ABC book for the Jewish children. <laughs> Leviticus. How many of you studied Leviticus deeply? Yeah. If people are engaged in knowing what God's will is, if we can get our children engaged in that, 
They won't need entertainment. They'll desire earnestly to follow after God. What about a drive for this world's goods? That was mentioned there in Mark chapter 4. There is a desire for those things. It's, it's great to have the comforts, not have to worry about anything. And sometimes the excuse is even, oh, I'll have more to give to the Lord. If I just work a few extra hours of overtime, I'll have more to give to the Lord. Okay, great. What about the time you could be given to the Lord while you're working all these extra hours of overtime? What about the time you could be giving to bring your family to give more to the Lord while you're working all these hours of overtime? You've got to realize there's a payoff. Anytime you choose to do one thing, you're choosing not to do something else. We need to understand that. Let's give ourselves earnestly to seeking the Lord. Maybe overtime is necessary. Maybe that's a good thing. But let's be honest about the motives behind it. Let's use these things for seeking and heeding Christ. Sometimes it may just be laziness. I admit, sometimes that's the case. And we drift so much when we just decide, I want to take some time for me. I'm just going to settle for a little bit. And we end up drifting. We wouldn't do that if we were on choppy seas in a boat. We'd be paying earnest heed. We're in choppy seas. We've sang about that. There's a storm all around us. The truth is, we've got to rid ourselves of whatever it is that occupies us in such a way that we neglect and drift from Christ. Because the question is, how shall we escape the just recompense, the just reward of God, reward in a negative sense here, if we neglect such an exceeding great salvation? Give earnest heed, give exceeding great heed, because the salvation is exceeding great. There's a payoff, and there's a desire that ought to be ours. There's a reason why the, the Hebrew writer is giving all of this warning. He's not first setting forth to shame the Hebrews or us. They're doing something that's dangerous, and he wants to warn them, but he wants to warn them by encouraging them to something better, a better way of thinking and a better way of acting. And that's what the Hebrew writer's doing here. He's not saying, shame on you, you're all, you're all reprobates. He's saying, be careful. Take heed that this doesn't happen to you. There's something so much better. You're being enticed. So Hebrews 2 really ends with encouragement. I want to read these verses here, 16 through 18. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels. It was mediated by angels, but it wasn't for angels. He does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is also able to aid those who are tempted. The desire is for his help. And the way he helps us then is through this word that he's given us, if we will take earnest heed to it. Jesus did all that he did, down to giving his life in our place, delivering this word and the means of salvation that come through it, because he desires to aid us. He wants to help us. Do we want his help? That's the question. Are we willing to do what it takes to reach where he is and receive what he's got to offer us? The truth is, if we're not in Christ, we cannot escape. If we neglect this great salvation, we cannot escape the just condemnation. And if we're not in Christ, then we haven't given heed to what he's saying. We reject the invitation of God if we don't respond to the invitation to the blessed marriage feast in Christ, if we reject him. But if we are in Christ, and we've allowed ourselves to drift and to become negligent, we also can't escape. That's the issue. It might think that, well, we're safe. We're in Christ. But if we're not earnestly seeking, if we're not giving diligence to our faith, and we're not growing to please him, we are drifting. I pray that you'll take a look around you at your spiritual life. 
Take a look around you at your physical life and see how it reflects where your priorities are. Are you neglecting so great a salvation? If you are, let me help you. (laughs) I need your help as well because we'll drift unless we're anchored all in the same Christ and together we can encourage each other to that. If you've made light of God's grace that's been extended to you, there is only the hope of condemnation. Our desire for you is the desire that Christ had. We want to help you. We want you to serve earnestly alongside us. We want to be able to be encouraged to serve together with you. Thankful for your presence today. Thankful for those who are online. We want to encourage you to be giving diligent and earnest heed to these things. I need to, and you need to, and together we can. (laughs) This encouragement is what we need. So if you're not a Christian and we can help you with that today, Please let us know about that if you're willing to come forward confessing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, to enter into the waters of baptism on your repentance, to have your sins forgiven. That would be the greatest joy to help you with that. If you are a Christian and you're struggling, if you feel like you may be drifting and you want someone to help you get back to the anchor, we're here to help you with that as well. Whatever your need is, please make it known. We're going to stand and sing a song for your encouragement.